The Can He Do That podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Then check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, and welcome to Can He Do That, a podcast about the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Jenna Johnson, and I'm a White House correspondent for The Washington Post. My colleague, Josh Dossie, and I will be taking over the podcast this episode to bring you an inauguration anniversary special. We'll revisit Trump's inauguration speech from a year ago. Inauguration speeches are typically used by presidents to talk about the challenges that face America, bring the country together after a divisive campaign, and celebrate uh, the country and the American spirit. So today, it's almost a year since Trump gave this speech, so we're going to listen to it again, and we're going to talk about the memorable moments, the promises he made, and where the country stands one year later. All right, let's get started. Chief Justice Roberts, President Carter, President Clinton, President Bush, President Obama, fellow Americans, and people of the world, thank you. We, the citizens of America, are now joined in a great national effort to rebuild our country and restore its promise for all of our people. Together, we will determine the course of America and the world for many, many years to come. We will face challenges. We will confront hardships. But we will get the job done. Every four years, we gather on these steps to carry out the orderly and peaceful transfer of power. And we are grateful to President Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama for their gracious aid throughout this transition. They have been magnificent. Thank you. Today's ceremony, however, has very special meaning. Because today, we are not merely transferring power from one administration to another, or from one party to another. But we are transferring power from Washington, D.C., and giving it back to you, the people. Okay, so so far, this has been a very standard introduction. But it is a reminder of how, when Trump first came into office, he had this opportunity to be kind of a populist president, someone who could give power of Washington back to the people to not get caught up in these partisan fights. I think we haven't quite seen that happen. I think he has kind of fallen back into the partisan way that that Washington works. But in that moment, as he was standing there, obviously reading from a teleprompter, you can even just hear that in his voice, not necessarily talking off the cuff like he usually did. This is the message that, that he began his presidency with. And, and, and I want to add a couple of things. You have here he's saying he's gracious to President Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama. The next month, you know, he uh, 
accused President Obama of tapping his phones and got him a bad or sick guy. You're seeing him here praise President Clinton. He has since called for the prosecution of Hillary Clinton. So you have a president here who is, you know, reading from his teleprompter in these kind of lofty tones and, and giving this scripted speech. And then all of a sudden, you know, the vagaries of the campaign and what we know about President Trump emerged really as soon as he left the stage. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's keep listening. For too long, a small group in our nation's capital has reaped the rewards of government while the people have borne the cost. Washington flourished, but the people did not share in its wealth. Politicians prospered, but the jobs left and the factories closed. The establishment protected itself, but not the citizens of our country. Their victories have not been your victories. Their triumphs have not been your triumphs. And while they celebrated in our nation's capital, there was little to celebrate for struggling families all across our what, land. One point here. Uh, this was a message that that the president took on the campaign trail, I think, to a lot of success. You know, the mill towns, Jenna traveled to a lot of these places and has chronicled, uh, you know, the voters who, who picked him. But for my native state of South Carolina, there are lots of places who love this message from the president and were nostalgic for better days. But what he's saying right here, I think, in, in some ways, is the entire encapsulation of his political campaign. They screwed you over. I mean, that's, that was literally his message. You got screwed. Exactly. And and on paper, the country was doing well. The economy was doing well. The stock market was doing well. Jobs were being created and things like that. But when you go home or when you're out in communities or um, when you're in a rally crowd and you talked with people, they felt like their lives hadn't gotten better, that they felt like their lives had just kind of been frozen in place and that all these data points didn't mean anything to them. And whatever they disliked about the president, they were willing to vote Trump to just blow up the system and hope it got better. That all changes, starting right here and right now, because this moment is your moment. It belongs to you. It belongs to everyone gathered here today and everyone watching all across America. This is your day. This is your celebration. And this the United States of America is your country. What truly matters is not which party controls our government, but whether our government is controlled by the people. January 20th, 2017 will be remembered as the day the people became the rulers of this nation again. The forgotten men and women of our country will be forgotten no longer. Everyone is listening to you now. You came by the tens of millions to become part of a historic movement the likes of which the world has never seen before.
I want to jump in quickly here. One of the things the president often does is cast his campaign and movement as something that's never been seen before. Certainly in politics, it was unparalleled how he campaigned and how he won. But the stark reality is, you know, he lost a popular vote by three million people. One of the things we've seen consistently over the past year is President Trump talk about his election win and cast it in these, you know, Herculean revolutionary terms of of something that has never been done before when the reality is that's not quite right. And I mean, the big question now is there is this Trump movement. There are these people out there that he was able to bring together and bring to the polls. But where do they go from here? You don't necessarily see him reaching out to them um, for help getting legislation passed on the Hill. And it really remains to be seen if they're going to be a force in the 2018 midterm elections. What does it mean to be a Trumpian? Is it the same as being a Republican? Is being a Trump Republican different than Republicans of the past? The Republican Party is trying to figure out what it is now. And Trump's trying to figure out what role he plays in elections other than just his own. At the center of this movement is a crucial conviction that a nation exists to serve its citizens. Americans want great schools for their children, safe neighborhoods for their families, and good jobs for themselves. These are just and reasonable demands of righteous people and a righteous public. But for too many of our citizens, a different reality exists. Mothers and children trapped in poverty in our inner cities, rusted out factories scattered like tombstones across the landscape of our nation, an education system flush with cash, but which leaves our young and beautiful students deprived of all knowledge. And the crime and the gangs and the drugs that have stolen too many lives and robbed our country of so much unrealized potential. This American carnage stops right here and stops right now. So that was the line that was all over cable news in the following days. And the reason is you have typically politicians, particularly in inauguration speeches, have tried to strike a uplifting, ascendant tone. You think about Ronald Reagan and Morning in America. You think about Bill Clinton and, and what he promised in his inauguration speech. Uh, you know, a new dawn uh, is kind of a general theme. President Trump often cast the country and how people feel in dystopian terms. He's not someone who often says things are great. One of the questions I have for his reelection is how will he campaign? Because basically his whole campaign was an indictment on the current system. He has, you know, ran as an outsider. He doesn't say here are a lot of great things happening in our country. We can make them better. It's uh, everything is essentially down the toilet and we will, you know, hopefully fix it. Uh, and this is a perfect distillation of his view and how a lot of his voters see things and why he won. Well, and the other thing is, on the campaign trail, he had this attitude of, America is terrible and I will make it great. And the minute that I'm elected to office, everything will be better. You know, I mean, the American carnage stops right now. 
And that's just not how things work. (laughs) I mean, you can't solve poverty overnight. You cannot solve violence overnight. And a lot of critics of the president would argue that in the past year, he has done a lot of things that don't seem aimed at helping people who are in poverty. On the campaign trail, he talked about ending violence in Chicago, ending violence in the inner cities. What have we seen um, that he's done? What he was kind of laying out here, we just haven't seen him follow up on. We are one nation, and their pain is our pain. Their dreams are our dreams, and their success will be our success. We share one heart, one home, and one glorious destiny. The oath of office I take today is an oath of allegiance to all Americans. For many decades, we've enriched foreign industry at the expense of American industry, subsidized the armies of other countries while allowing for the very sad depletion of our military. We've defended other nations' borders while refusing to defend our own. And spent trillions and trillions of dollars overseas while America's infrastructure has fallen into disrepair and decay. We've made other countries rich while the wealth, strength, and confidence of our country has dissipated over the horizon. One by one, the factories shuttered and left our shores with not even a thought about the millions and millions of American workers that were left behind. The wealth of our middle class has been ripped from their homes and then redistributed all across the world. But that is the past. And now we are looking only to the future. We assembled here today are issuing a new decree to be heard in every city, in every foreign capital, and in every hall of power. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. So this has been an interesting part of his presidency so far. It's how you take this American first mission and put it into actual policy and actual governing. It was something that I think alarmed a lot of Republicans, but it really, I think, was something his supporters just really embraced and loved. They thought, as he said in the speech here, that people had, had forgotten America in in this globalism movement and the kind of populism, nationalism that Steve Bannon and others have pushed in the administration in its early days. But, you know, at the same time, you don't really have a foreign policy doctrine now that 
is it's kind of inexplicable. What is this foreign policy doctrine? What does America first mean? What does it mean on trade? What does it mean on the economy? You've had a lot of tough talk. We might pull out of NAFTA. We haven't pulled out of NAFTA. We're going to pull out of the Paris climate deal. There's been a lot of mixed signals on what America first actually means so far past kind of a cultural slogan that, that propelled his candidacy. Yeah, and sometimes it has meant just kind of going along and doing what any Republican president might do in this situation. And other times it's been used to kind of back up decisions that the rest of the world looks at and just says, what are you doing? Really? The Paris Climate Agreement is one of those examples. Paris, not Pittsburgh. Remember that famous line? Exactly. And another one is the president's recent decision on Jerusalem, making that the official recognized capital of Israel, something that all of our allies looked at and said, please don't do this. You're really not going to gain anything internationally with this. And he went again, went ahead and did it. All right, let's jump back in. Every decision on trade, on taxes, on immigration, on foreign affairs will be made to benefit American workers and American families. We must protect our borders from the ravages of other countries making our products, stealing our companies, and destroying our jobs. I'm going to make a quick point here. One of the most fascinating paradigms to me of his presidency has been how he has described the economy as in such just in the gutter before he became president and now talks about the economy as it's booming, stock markets higher than ever before, unemployment's lower than ever before, black unemployment's lower than ever before. He makes, you know, all of these just kind of stupendous and grandiose claims, some of them true, about the economy from a year ago when he was saying the ravages of other countries stealing our products and companies and destroying our jobs. It's like we're living in two different worlds from one year ago in his rhetoric. Protection will lead to great prosperity and strength. I will fight for you with every breath in my body, and I will never, ever let you down. America will start winning again, winning like never before. We will bring back our jobs. We will bring back our borders. We will bring back our wealth. And we will bring back our dreams. We will build new roads and highways and bridges and airports and tunnels and railways all across our wonderful nation. We will so that hasn't really happened. Uh, the president has somewhat proposed an infrastructure plan that for the past year has kind of floundered. There's still not really a path forward to do it. Some of his administration are pushing public-private partnerships. The president doesn't like those. Republicans don't want to spend money on it. Democrats are unlikely to want to give him a win on infrastructure in a 2018 year. So one of his key promises here for a lot of reasons, has really gone nowhere. And I think it's just important to point out this was something that he talked about repeatedly on the campaign trail, and we have not seen any sign of that yet other than talk. 
And he's, he put a big price tag on it. He said that he was going to spend a trillion dollars on this. And this is something that really resonated with Republican voters and Democratic voters. Um, in a lot of communities across the country, there just isn't money for these infrastructure projects, for fixing roads, for updating uh, sewer systems, for all these projects that uh, states and local governments have just struggled to find the money to do it. So when voters heard this line, it resonated with them. They could think of a road that they wanted fixed, an airport that they wanted updated. And a lot of people have argued that when Donald Trump got into office, he should have led with this. This would have been an opportunity to immediately partner with Democrats, uh, to push his party to get behind his agenda, and to get a big win with all sorts of Americans. And he hasn't touched it. He hasn't done it yet. Off of welfare and back to work rebuilding our country with American hands and American labor. We will follow two simple rules, buy American and hire American. We will seek friendship and goodwill with the nations of the world, but we do so with the understanding that it is the right of all nations to put their own interests first. We do not seek to impose our way of life on anyone, but rather to let it shine as an example. We will shine for everyone to follow. We will reinforce old alliances and form new ones and unite the civilized world against radical Islamic terrorism, which we will eradicate completely from the face of the earth. This was a big moment in this speech when he said out loud, radical Islamic terrorism, a phrase that he used at almost every single campaign rally, and one that just made a lot of foreign policy experts just cringe because it plays into a lot of fears that a lot of Americans have of Muslims, that uh, kind of this unfounded fear out there that anyone who's a follower of Islam could be a terrorist. And just so directly connecting terrorism to Islam, a lot of people had asked him to stop doing this. Um, but here in his inaugural speech, um, he, you know, put, <laughs> put it down and let people know he wasn't going to stop saying this. At the bedrock of our politics, will be a total allegiance to the United States of America. And through our loyalty to our country, we will rediscover our loyalty to each other. When you open your heart to patriotism, there is no room for prejudice. The Bible tells us how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. We must speak our minds openly, debate our disagreements honestly, but always pursue solidarity. When America is united, America is totally unstoppable. So this is a part of a speech where the president uh, strikes a more unifying tone rhetorically. It's not something we've really seen, though, since. 
one of the more fascinating parts of his president to me is he will go to a rally and excoriate Democrats, uh, excoriate the news media, excoriate all of his political enemies, you know, pick shots against everyone. And then at the end, we'll say, we are all one people who bleed the same blood. We are all together. Uh, we will be unified when the entire subtext of a rally was division. Uh, and that's kind of a constant theme of his presidency. You know, he's talked about wanting to heal racial wounds, but has soaked them. He's talked about wanting to uh, bring Democrats together, but has mocked them on Twitter relentlessly. So he's talked about this concept of unity, but I don't think for President Trump, unity is seen as something that's useful for him politically. It is seen more useful to be divisive, uh, to really stoke racial flames, to stoke cultural tensions, to insult black NFL players for kneeling during the national anthem, to get in the middle of these cultural battles and these divisive battles. Yeah, and the day after this inaugural speech, millions of women and others gathered in the streets of American cities and cities all across the world to protest him and to challenge him. And since that day, he really hasn't done much to, to reach across. Um, you know, he'll, he will give speeches where he will talk about unity and talk about the country coming together. But we don't see him going to communities that oppose him, sitting down and talking with people who are upset about his policies or even acknowledging the concerns that are out there. A great example of that is the travel ban that he put in place soon after inauguration. A week um, later. Exactly. And that is what it was and did not seem willing to listen to criticisms of it, did not seem willing to explain or answer questions about it. This was the way it was going to be. And actions like that send a much stronger message than lines like this in a speech. Right. I think you're 100% right. I guess let's move on to the end of a speech. There should be no fear. We are protected, and we will always be protected. We will be protected by the great men and women of our military and law enforcement. And most importantly, we will be protected by God. Finally, we must think big and dream even bigger. In America, we understand that a nation is only living as long as it is striving. We will no longer accept politicians who are all talk and no action constantly complaining, but never doing anything about it. The time for empty talk is over. Now arrives the hour of action. Do not allow anyone to tell you that it cannot be done. No challenge can match the heart and fight and spirit of America. We will not fail. Our country will thrive and prosper again. We stand at the birth of a new millennium, ready to unlock the mysteries of space, to free the Earth from the miseries of disease, and to harness the energies, industries, and technologies of tomorrow. 
A new national pride will stir our souls, lift our sights, and heal our divisions. It's time to remember that old wisdom our soldiers will never forget, that whether we are black or brown or white, we all bleed the same red blood of patriots. We all enjoy the same glorious freedoms, and we all salute the same great American flag. And whether a child is born in the urban sprawl of Detroit or the windswept plains of Nebraska, they look up at the same night sky, they fill their heart with the same dreams, and they are infused with the breath of life by the same almighty Creator. I want to make a quick point here. Uh, one of the things we see throughout this speech is a reference to the Bible and to God. You have a president who won evangelicals overwhelmingly, even though, by all accounts, he uh, is a president who does not have instilled in him, I think, a deep sense of religion or faith. But he has had remarkable support and continued allegiances from evangelical Christians who may not like some of his swearing and may not like what he said on the Access Hollywood tape, but believes he's fighting for them and believes he is pushing policies of abortion and uh, religious liberties and these cultural issues, a flag that they really embrace. And uh, it's it's been one of the biggest things I've struggled with honestly, to understand about this presidency is why evangelicals are so inured uh, to him no matter what happens, no matter when he says shithole countries, no matter when he the access Hollywood tape. He, it's been kind of an unbreakable bond because for whatever reason, he has pushed the policies of evangelicals. He has seen them as his political, uh, you know, his groundswell, his political base, and they've really returned the favor. And it's not that no presidents before President Trump had ever mentioned the Bible before, <laughs> never mentioned God right. before. Um, this is uh, something that presidents often talk about their faith. And many presidents before President Trump were active uh, Christians, uh, going to church regularly and, and things like that. Trump has resonated with evangelicals in part because of stances he's taken, but also because he uses the language that they use. Um, he sprinkles his speeches, even when he's not just saying the word Bible or God. He's using a lot of the same language that evangelicals use. And that's one of the reasons that they say he sounds like us, even though he's li living a lifestyle very different than many American evangelical Christians. Right. And one other quick point before we move on. Uh, Jenna had a story last week after the president insulted African countries where, uh, you know, uh, you polled a lot of his supporters and we polled some religious leaders and they found all sorts of ways to defend him. And uh, I've I've thought repeatedly from when he said the 9/11 towers fell under George Bush's watch till he called John McCain not a war hero because he preferred the ones that weren't captured uh, to his fighting with the Gold Star family at at all of these different inflection points. It seemed that the space might be a little shakeable. It it hasn't been. 
And and one thing that we heard after the Access Hollywood um, tape was a lot of evangelical leaders still supporting him and saying, I know he's not a Sunday school teacher, but I don't want a Sunday school teacher being president. Um, I want a fighter being president. And I think that a lot of evangelicals are really drawn toward the president being kind of this outsider, underdog fighter who's not afraid to say really unpopular things, even if they don't agree with those unpopular things. All right, we can jump back into the speech now. So to all Americans in every city near and far, small and large, from mountain to mountain, from ocean to ocean, hear these words. You will never be ignored again. Your voice, your hopes, and your dreams will define our American destiny. And your courage and goodness and love will forever guide us along the way. Together, we will make America strong again. We will make America wealthy again. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. And yes, Together, we will make America great again. Thank you, God bless you, and God bless America. So this is how Donald Trump always ended his speeches on the campaign trail. And reporters who were on the campaign plane with him kind of learned that when you started hearing him listing off all the things that America was going to do once again, you better have your bag and be running to the plane (laughs) because we were about to take off. Um, But it really just is like a bulleted list of everything that's going to change now that he's in office. Strong again, wealthy again, proud again, safe again, great again. And what do these things really mean? I mean, that's kind of part of the um, uh, part of what he's doing here is making very vague promises. I mean, what exactly does it mean to be great again? Um, these are goals that are kind of hard to hold him to. One hundred percent. The whole uh, mystique of Trump is he says everything and says nothing at the same time. Sometimes you can uh, listen to one of his speeches or his rallies. And we've done this over and over. And uh, you can hear what you want to hear. If you hate him, you can hear something to hate. If you love him, you can hear something to love. You can try to pin him down on exactly what he means or what he says. It's really hard to do. Uh, You know, a lot of these uh, a lot of it is just uh, emotion and gut. And how does he make you feel? And that's kind of where we are. Exactly. All right. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. And if you want more of the latest news from the White House, you can follow me on Twitter at WPJenna. And you can find me at jdossie1. Thanks for listening. Uh, If you like this, please do us a favor and subscribe. Then rate and view us on Apple Podcasts. We want good ratings, of course. And you can find more Washington Post podcasts at WashingtonPost.com slash podcast. Thanks for listening. like can he do that you should check out some of our other great podcasts like constitutional a series about how people have framed and reframed the constitution over time from host lillian cunningham or try cape up with jonathan capehart where jonathan brings you the voices you need to hear on the topics you try to avoid 
You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.